Uh, we, one thing I should say before I begin is that we had painters here this week and they've moved the pews. So if you feel like you've been shifted into economy class and your knees are pressed up in front of you, that's okay. We'll get it fixed soon. But it might be a good opportunity to reach forward and touch the person in front of you. Say, hi, how are you doing? Well, make sure you know them. Don't creep them out. That's not the point. Okay. Uh, we are continuing to talk about Old Testament characters, and today we get to look at the person of Saul. And next week we'll talk about David. And so there's a kind of dovetailing between Saul and David and how this works. And today, just to give you a heads up, we're going to focus on how fear has the power to corrupt our call, how fear stands in the way of call. So to get us started, let's just talk about Saul's life in overview. Let's give you a big overview of what's going on. Because the story of Saul really begins in the time of the judges. Now, some of you haven't memorized your books of the Bible for a long time. So, you know, we've got Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the New Testament. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books of Moses called the Torah. And they're the law and the story of Israel coming out of Egypt. And then we get Joshua, and then Judges, Ruth, and then 1st, 2nd Samuel. And these are the books that deal with the time of period between uh, exile and entering the land and then a new kingship. So Moses was the leader of Israel out of Egypt. We know this. And we also know that because of his disobedience, because he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, um, he ends up not being able to lead people into the promised land. He leads them for 40 years in the wilderness, and he's not allowed to lead them into the promised land. And after Moses, there's a guy named Joshua, son of Nun, and he takes over and then he becomes the leader of Israel when they enter uh, Canaan and they f follow through with the conquest. This is the book of Joshua, his stuff. And then after Joshua, what happens is Israel's this confederation of tribes. It's 13 clans, all with clan leaders, and they've all kind of got independence, each in their own different properties and inheritances. There's no centralized government in ancient Israel. There's no centralized leadership. There's, in fact, as I see it, there's only three things that unify Israel in the Old Testament, in this part of the Old Testament. The first is the law, those five books of Moses. Um, the law is handed down by God at Sinai. This is the first thing that unifies the people of Israel. The second thing is the tabernacle. Remember, they had this mobile tent unit that moved with God's presence wherever they wandered in the wilderness, and eventually it was planted at Shiloh. And so they had the tabernacle at Shiloh was one of the unifying factors of the people. And then the third thing they had were a series of ritual feasts which demanded pilgrimage. So every year at Passover, everybody was supposed to get together at Shiloh to celebrate the Passover together. So the ritual feasts were the things that brought people together. So the law, the tabernacle, and the rituals were the things that held people together. Actually, there was a fourth unifying factor, um, and that was that the, the land continued to have other people in it. When they went in, they were supposed to remove all the other people before they came in, and they didn't do a very good job of it, so they were bothered for a lot of time. So they're leftover Canaanites who would harass them. Um, and eventually there was an invasive tribe of coastal pirates called the Philistines. Okay? That's who they were. There was an invading tribe. They came from the coast, and they, they were raiding parties, um, like Vikings, but, you know, in the Mediterranean. And so, we get to the book of Judges, and what you have is a kind of constant cycle in the book of Judges. Israel's kind of on their own, they're doing fine, they're this loose confederation, and then the next thing that happens is they forget God, and this isn't good, and so then God in the book sends some enemies to them to bother them, and then when they're bothered, they remember God, which is kind of a nice, well, not nice, it's kind of a pattern for us, right? We forget God until we need him, and so then they need God, and they cry out, and then God raises up a judge, a prophet, someone on whom his spirit rests, and then the judge rescues the people, a temporary leader. So here's Israel's early governmental system. God is in charge. It's a theocracy in that sense. 
He speaks through his prophets, and they rotate who they are. And then he raises up judges, like military leaders, as necessary. We have temporary offices in these things. That's the governmental system. But the everyday Israelite wasn't too keen on this. They seem not to like it. In fact, they keep saying, we wish we had a king like the other nations. Like our neighbors, they've got a king. Why don't we have a king? It's much easier. We know who's in charge. We know how things work. We want this. And so uh, they begin to ask God for a king. And Samuel, who we looked at last week with Pastor Brendan, he was the last judge and prophet of Israel, the last of these figures who governed by means of this kind of like temporary highlight. And the people petitioned Samuel and through Samuel God for a king, and God gives them the king so they could be like the nations. And when you read the text, sometimes it sounds like God says, so you want a king? Fine, I'll give you a king. You're going to get what you asked for. And it doesn't turn out all that well for them in the end. So Samuel follows God's leading. And following God's leading, he finds and anoints Saul as Israel's first king. And these are, this is the subject of the book of 1 Samuel chapters 8, 9, and 10 is the finding of Saul. And because it's going to feature really prominently what I say this morning, I'm actually going to read all of 1 Samuel chapter 10 for you now. We'll come back to these passages in a minute, but let me read it for you now. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 10. So Samuel, he's already found Saul and anointed, he's going to anoint him king. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and you will come out as far as the oak of Tabor, and there three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. This is quite specific instructions. Okay. Afterward, you will come, home, come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. This is a lovely image, prophets just wandering around with musical instruments. I think we could do this in North Vancouver. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come down upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be charged, changed excuse me, into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill, there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the other prophets, that he, the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, now who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now, Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And Saul said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But Saul did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. Therefore, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So I'm going to give you what you asked for. Verse 20. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by families, and the Matrite family was taken. And then Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But Saul kept silent. Like I said, we're going to return to this passage in a bit. We'll talk about several parts of it as we go through, but it's an interesting snapshot of coming out of the time of the judges and entering into the time of kingship and Samuel being the last judge and maybe feeling a little petulant, like, aren't I in charge through God and aren't you rejecting me? And um, there's some funny dynamics of life and humanity in here. So Saul's job now, his official job as king is to fight off Israel's enemies. Be ready to fight at any moment. And mostly this will be the Philistines for the rest of 1 Samuel. And when Saul obeys, he succeeds. And very early, though, he starts to go his own way. Things start to bend out of control. He's appointed to the role, but he has real trouble with follow-through. He can't seem to close the deal when he does things. And this brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 15. There are some specific instructions given by Samuel. Attack the Amalekites. Okay, step one. Step two, take no plunder. Okay? That's what you're supposed to do. Don't take any plunder from them. Instead, you're supposed to destroy all their wealth. This is what God wants you to do. And so what does Saul do? He attacks the Amalekites. Great. Good job so far. But he keeps some of the sheep behind. He doesn't actually destroy all of it. After all, why destroy perfectly good sheep? They're delicious. Okay? So he's thinking about these things. And this is the first instance of a pattern of half-obedience that will plague the rest of Saul's life. He half obeys. So let me read for you 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 to 21. Okay? So Samuel's confronting Saul about this. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. No, he hasn't. Right? And he knows it. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? I hear sheep, Samuel says to Saul. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go out and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Why couldn't you follow through? Verse 20, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of, the Amalek, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I did obey, sort of, right? I was saving it for you. You can hear kind of Saul whining his way through his half-obedience. And those of you who are parents have heard this voice in your own kids from time to time. I did put it away. No, you didn't, right? I did, but I did what you told me, Dad. No, you didn't. And here's Saul trying to, be, trying to pass off half-truths to the Almighty. And from this moment on, God removes his blessing from Saul. But, and this is what's tragic, he does not remove Saul from the kingship. So for the rest of his life and for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul remains king, but without the blessing of God. And it's deeply, deeply tragic to watch this story. So it's immediately after this that Samuel appoints David to be king. David's anointed, he's the next king, he's the guy who's got, whose God's hand is on, uh, but it will be years until David takes the throne. And what follows in the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel is that Saul's star descends while David's star rises. Okay, David just gets bigger and bigger while Saul gets smaller and smaller. David is hugely successful and Saul becomes envious of him. Um, at one point, uh, because of the conflicts in his life, Saul kind of begins to go insane and the only thing that calms him down is David playing music. And even recognizing how valuable David is, he tries to kill David in those moments. Uh, it gets more and more difficult. Uh, eventually, what happens is that isolated, afraid, even Samuel won't help Saul. He just gets more and more put aside. And eventually Samuel dies. And in a moment of pure desperation, Saul knowingly goes to a witch to summon the spirit of Samuel alive so he can get Samuel's advice. He still doesn't know how to go to the Lord. He's still trying these workarounds, and that's the last straw. And Saul and his son Jonathan are shortly thereafter killed by the Philistines. Their bodies are desecrated, they're beheaded, and they're left to rot. And it's the end of their lives. That's the end of Saul's kingship. All right, this is a story of tragedy. It's a tragic story. And why are we attending to it today? Why spend time looking at it? A couple reasons. First, because the Bible contains fun bits as well as hard bits. And faithfulness means we look at the hard bits just as much as the fun bits. We have to attend to the difficult places as well. But more importantly this morning, I think that we are like Saul. I think that we're like Saul. Now, it's very popular today to think that we're like David. In fact, one of the most spiritually satisfying stories is, is, is to think, to put yourself in the Bible through the David story. You've got some Goliath you've got to deal with, right? Some challenge that's up there, and all you need is a little bit of faith, and you can step up, and the Lord will defeat your Goliath for you. That feels good, doesn't it? Or you've messed up in your life like David messes up, and you've got to pray your repentance and get made right with the Lord like David, a man after God's own heart. We want to see ourselves like David, but I actually think we're like Saul. We're afraid. Most of our life is characterized by fear. Like Saul, we've been called by God. We've been granted incredible promises if we obey, but we listen to our fears more than we listen to God. 
Like Saul, we know exactly what we're supposed to do, but we do the opposite or we do it halfway. We take half measures towards obedience. And like Saul, in these patterns of half obedience, we speak half truths. We try to lie to the Almighty. Try and bluster our way through. I did try to obey God, trying to snake and squirrel and twist ourselves. And so I want to highlight uh, Saul's story this morning to show how we live beneath the level of our call. So let me talk about some things that Saul feared as I see it. There's two things that I think from the text are things Saul feared. Number one is I think Saul feared failure. I think Saul was afraid of failure. Let me draw this out from one of the texts we looked at earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. This is Samuel speaking a promise over Saul. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with these prophets and be changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you. Do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. Now this is a remarkable promise. God's Spirit will rest upon you. The power and empowerment of Almighty God will be upon you and in you, and it will give you strength. It will transform you. You won't be the person you were before. You'll be someone new. You'll be God's man. This is great news. And when that happens, you know what you get to do? Do what you please. Do what you think is right because God is with you. That is an incredible promise. It's an amazingly expansive promise that Saul has received. Incredible freedom to act on these things. And it happens. Everything Samuel says happens. He meets the guys with the loaves of bread, and he meets the people about the donkeys, and he meets these prophets, and he gets the spirit, and he starts prophesying. It becomes a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? None of you say this to me regularly, but I think we should make it a thing. I don't know what it means, but... Nobody does these things. So Saul has all these promises come true. He receives all the confirmations that God is here and present and speaking to him. And when the kingship events are filled, where do we find Saul? 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin. And the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. They inquired further of the Lord Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself. He's been given this immense promise of God's power and access and the ability to do things for God. And what's he doing? He's hiding. He's he's hanging out with the baggage. He's squatting among the donkeys. Nobody can find him. Saul, in the face of God's immeasurable call, hides himself. I think he's afraid to act. Second reason Paul's afraid, Saul is afraid, excuse me, is because I believe Saul feared the future. I think Saul feared the future. And now there's two ways to draw this from our text this morning. Uh, first, we can look at about the way that Saul keeps some of the spoils after fighting the Amalekites. This is 1 Samuel 15. Uh, this is the business of sheep, okay? The business of sheep. Now, it could have been simple acquisitiveness, right? Like maybe Saul liked stuff and just wanted to keep stuff, right? And sometimes, you know, when you're poor, it's hard to get rid of things because you never know when you might need it. It'd be really challenging to have to dedicate things to the Lord that are obvious wealth because I don't know where next wealth is going to come from, right? So maybe he just wanted to hold it. Or maybe it was possessiveness. Owning sheep made him feel good. I don't know. Maybe he liked sheep and he wanted to keep them nearby. But I think a better answer, perhaps, it's not the only answer, but I think it's a better answer, is that there's some fear of the future. 
If I dedicate these sheep to God, will he come through for me? If I, if I really give up this resource, can I trust him to be good and supply for me when time comes again? This is a challenge. And sometimes I think we hold on to things even when God tells us explicitly to let them go because we're afraid of the future without those things. And then what we do is we justify our fear with a veneer of spirituality. Well, I'm using it for God's purposes. Well, God wants me to enjoy his earth, doesn't he? I'm not really, I'm not meant to be poor in this way, right, God? So we give spirituality to lend half-truths to our half-obedience. So that's the first thing. I think sheep reveal a fear of the future in that Amalekite story. But second, we can look at his response to David. And when we see David, the writing's on the wall for, Samuel's, for Saul's kingship. David's anointed. Things are happening. David's becoming stronger, and Saul's becoming weaker. Saul's a powerful warrior, but David is powerfuller, right? He's just got... And Saul's reputation is good, but David's reputation is fantastic. And Saul can summon the tribes, but David's won everybody's hearts. Even the heart of Saul's son, Jonathan, is won by David. Everybody around Saul can see that David's the one. And I think there's a fear of the future that in David's ascent, Saul sees his own failure, and he can't handle it. He's terrified, which is why, against his will, he tries to run David off, which makes him more famous. And then he tries to kill him, making David's character more clear and worthy. And then he tries to marry him off to his daughter. This backfires as well. Everything Saul does to try and hinder David advances David, ultimately, um, even some of the most miserable things. And that's because Saul is trying to stop the future, but of course, he's only fighting against God. And you always lose the battle against God these things. So in both the fear of the failure and the fear of the future, Saul listens to his fears rather than listening to God. He makes decisions based on his fears. He acts on his fears. And it's not as if he doesn't know what God wants. He knows. He full well knows what God wants. All he has to do to, is to obey God's call. This is illustrated quite frighteningly when he visits this witch in 1 Samuel 28. He goes to a witch. She's the witch of Endor. And if you're a Star Wars fan, you know where George Lucas got the name. Okay? visits the witch of Endor, summons Samuel's spirit from the grave, and there's no question that what he's doing is wrong. There is at no moment is there a sense of like, well, it might have been okay in the circumstances. No. Perfectly, completely, holistically, totally wrong. You don't do this. But Saul has so disposed himself to his fears that he will look anywhere rather than just obey God. He will turn to anything rather than listening to the Almighty. And the result is that he loses his kingdom and his life. So as I said, I think we're more like Saul than like David. And let me make this clear. I think because it's like Saul, God has placed a call upon each of us. He's called us to follow him. He's given us, through baptism and through belief, his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God rests in us. He's opened the doors to being partners with him in his ministry. He said, come, join me in what I'm doing in the world. He's calling us to participate in his kingdom, and he's calling us to obedience. And I think in response, we have a lot of fear. What are the things that we fear? Well, we fear failure, of course. That's no fun. And the future's hard. It's difficult, too. We like to be in control of our outcomes. But I think we fear a lot of other things, too. Let me list some of them. What will people think? If I really obey Jesus, what will people think about me? Or what will people say? 
If they know I'm a Christian, what will they say about me? What will my peers say if they know that I'm part of that thing called this church and I go there on Sundays and I volunteer and give my time and I'm part of a small group? What will that mean for me? Will they laugh behind my back? Will they talk about me? Will they make fun of me when I don't participate in their partying and their weekends and the things they do? What will they say? What if it hurts? I think that's a real fear, isn't it? What if I can't go back to certain relationships because I've been called out of them? What if I lose friendships? People say, I don't want to be with you anymore. What if I can't see the boy or girl I'm dating anymore because I know in my heart it's not right? What if my family cuts me off? Now, for most of us in, in the Western world, this is not a major issue, but for many in the Middle Eastern world, coming to faith in Christ means loss of family. There's fear, cut off. What if people won't accept me? It's a real fear, isn't it? What if being a Christian makes me a loner? And in our consumer culture, I think here's the worst. What if I miss out? Hmm? What if I miss out on some experiences that everyone else has? What if I miss out on sexual experiences or drug-induced experiences or relational experiences or travel experiences? There's a kind of spiritually crippling FOMO that goes on for people. What if I miss out? Fears. When we listen to fear, it distorts our perceptions. It's really difficult to make good decisions when you're saturated in an attitude of fear. Really challenging to make good decisions. And fear then makes us obey in half measures. Okay, I'll obey, but we take like half steps toward it and then we get crippled by our fears. Some of you like to watch Mr. Bean, have watched it. My family and I are watching through him. There's a lovely Mr. Bean skit where he attempts to go over the high dive. I recommend you watch it at some point. Look up Mr. Bean high dive. All he has to do, of course, is walk to the edge and take his jump off into the water. But he gets up to the edge, I won't imitate it right now, and just crumbles to the ground and hangs on. He's holding onto the edges, and eventually uh, kids jump over him, and all sorts of things happen, and he just collapses into the water. He would have had a much better time if he just jumped off, like you're supposed to. But his half-obedience to what you're supposed to do at a high dive crippled him. Made the experience 10 times, 100 times worse. Now it's comic for Mr. Bean. It's much more serious for us, but we get crippled by our half-obediences. And the half-measures make our lives, like Saul's life, quite miserable. All right, how do we conquer our fears? I've got three ways for us to conquer our fears this morning I want to highlight for us. Number one is this. I want to invite you to fear God more than you fear our fear. How's that? Fear God more than we fear our fear. You know, there's a lot of things to be afraid of in our world today. Things like economic collapse. How about environmental collapse? How about nuclear war? What about just straight-up loneliness? Pain? Sickness? A grim diagnosis? War? Bad government? Or what about just malicious people? Just people. Pretty fearful sometimes, aren't they? Too fearful to be around them. In all these matters, what we have to do is examine our fears Consider it, hold it in front of you, and ask a question. Do I fear God more? 
It's not saying it's not worthy to be afraid of. I'm just saying, do I fear God more? It's putting it in perspective. Are my decisions made based on my fear of war or my fear of God? My fear of loneliness or my fear of the Almighty? My fear of death or my fear of the Lord of life and death? It's just putting things in perspective. A theologian named Joseph Pieper writes about a concept called the ordo temoris. It means the order of fears. And let me read you what he says for a moment. He says, the Christian asks about the order to Morris, the hierarchy of fear. He asks what is really and ultimately terrible, and he is concerned not to feel things which are not really and ultimately terrible. And he is concerned not to judge as harmless what is the ultimately terrible. Now, for Peeper, what is ultimately terrible is separation from the Almighty. <laughs> to be removed from relationship to Almighty God, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to any person. Everything else is relative to that no matter how fearful it may be. Now, if Joseph Pieper isn't quite clear, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, don't miss the capital letter on that word, him. The person who has power to destroy body and soul in hell is not Satan. It's God. You are to fear God who has authority over your life and over your death, not any earthly power. We don't answer to anyone but God. We've got to get our eyes on Him, make Him our focus. We sing, we read Scripture, we sit in community. This is a joyful reverence, not a fearful trembling around us. It's about getting the right perspective toward our world. Psalm 56, 1 through 4 puts it wonderfully. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Huh? Trust is in God. What can man do to me? Now, many years ago, my daughter Kate's was memorizing this verse at Awana. And somehow she picked up a kind of like New York business going on. She's like, in God I trust. What can mere man do to me? She'd shrug every time she said it. And you know what? That's the right attitude. What are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? What's worse than what God can do? Huh? Who are you going to obey? Huh? All right. I've worked with Italians, so it's kind of funny. But you got to shrug this. What are you afraid of? Hmm? This is not a trembling, cowering, uh, crippling fear. This is not a phobia of the heights where you're kind of falling down in front of them. This is actually just looking at the world and saying, what's man going to do? Huh? It's a shrug at the world's difficulties. So fearing God doesn't mean living in terror of God. It means shrugging at their fears. What will they think? Eh, what will they think? What do they say? Huh? What can they do? It's harder with things like if it hurts. What if it hurts? Well, how much more will it hurt if I don't? We get to put things in perspective. What if I miss out? Well, you're going to miss out on other more important things, aren't you? Second, second way to conquer fear is to rely on God's anointing. Rely on God's anointing. Now, Saul receives all the signs that he can trust God. He's filled with the Spirit. He prophesies. He's called by lot to be king of Israel, but he never trusts in those signs. He's got all the certificates and accreditations he requires, but he won't do the work. 
He just doesn't step up to it. Now, we've also got certification. We've believed and we're baptized. We've got the Word of God, the Holy Spirit living in us, certifying us to be partners with God. Are we relying on that anointing or are we trusting in ourselves? And that's the difference between Saul's, the fear of Saul and the, fear of our, how right, the right fear of our faith. Galatians 2.20 puts it wonderfully. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So when fear arises, the fear that distracts your attention and cripples your obedience and makes you look for half obediences and ways out, then you've got to rely on your call. I am a child of the Most High God. I've been redeemed by Jesus. He's purchased me with his blood. I can rest in confidence on his work and not my competencies. Okay? In the words of the Blues Brothers, in every situation, we're on a mission from God. Okay? We're here doing the work together. But what, you ask, if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not skilled enough? What if I don't have the things to say? What if I don't have the degrees and the study and the ability to do these things? Well, Jesus speaks to this as well. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Because of the Holy Spirit, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's a promise from Jesus. That in the moment, the Spirit will supply you with what you need to obey Him. So throw yourself on the Spirit. It's not about you. It's about our God. There's a lovely phrase I like. Uh, I repeat it sometimes, but I learned from my uncle. God does, not call the call, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. When He's looking for people He needs... He's not looking for the person who already has all the right credentials. He's looking for the right person whom he then can credential. So let's get our hearts right and our fears in the right place by relying on our anointing. Third and final way through fear is to find obedient companions. Find obedient companions. A huge source of our fear is isolation. If you think you're alone, the evil one gets inside your head and starts to make you think you're really alone and isolates you further and he starts to play games with you in these ways. And he will try to isolate you. In fact, that's one of the easiest ways the evil one gets people out of the church. He removes them from the fellowship, then they think they're all alone, then they think nobody cares about me, and before they know it, they're out. Isolation is one of his, one of his thin end of the wedge that he uses to drive people away. Now, there's a lot of talk in our culture about overcoming fear that has to do with, like, your personal skills. Like, you'll overcome with some self-mastery and some breathing techniques and maybe some procrastination exercises, and uh, you can do some self-talk. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Like, you can walk your way through these things, and that's how you're going to become an overcomer. But there is no picture of the Christian life in which you overcome outside of this community. If you're going to overcome fear, it's going to happen in the community. It'll be with other people. And this is where we do these things. Psalm 16.3 says this, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic, majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I love this. I love God's people. I love God's saints. I want to be in their community. I want to be focused on what they do. I want to be exalted by their companionship. I revel in the people of God. I'm formed by the people of God. I'm upheld by the people of God. And if you want to overcome fear, you need to be in a community of people. You need to be in church and in a small group and in accountability with people who are going to drive you. They're going to call you. 
and I'm going to walk with you through your fears. Now, I think this community can be both living and dead. Obviously, I want you to be with people in the room, but I also want you to read books by people who were fearless and have companionship with them. Pick up Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place and walk through that book. And she's a small, slight woman, but in faith, she's a powerhouse. Wonderful. Pick up Brother Andrew's book on uh, God's Smuggler and learn about what it means to be obedient. Learn about someone like William Carey who stepped out in faith. Or learn about Alliance missionary Robert Jaffrey, who's killed in Southeast Asia during the Second World War. Wonderful, fascinating people. And take comfort from their community. I'm with them. I'm part of that fellowship. Those are three things then. Order your fears. Rely on your anointing. And find faithful companions. And we use these things to reframe our questions. It's not about what people think. It's about what will God think? It's not about what people say, it's about what will the Almighty say. It's not really about how much it hurts, it's about how much will it hurt if we don't follow him? How much will the half-truths hurt? And it's really not about people accepting us, it's what if God won't accept me? Which is a terror-inducing question. And ultimately, it's not about what you miss out on, it's what will I miss out on, on what God is doing? Because I'll tell you what, the real party is in the stuff God is doing. I want to invite our worship team to come and take their places. I'm also going to invite our prayer team. So this morning we've got Leah and Daniel Lushenko, and they're going to come, and they'll be over here by the, um, in the awning under the, by the door. Yes, you guys can go. Um, I invite you to come for prayer this morning and to receive it. Come, whether or not you know your fears, if you have them, come with your fears and bring them. You don't have to describe it. You don't have to go into detail. Just say, I would like the comfort of the Lord in my fear and receive that. And let's pray together before we worship. Lord Jesus, you conquer all fears. And the more we look at you, the more our circumstances fade into perspective. I pray this morning for a spirit of lightness to rest upon us. That if we've been bound by fear and crippled by anxiety about the world, that you would break some of those strongholds for us today so that we can live and walk in obedient faith with you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.